All right, I want to start with a little poem, a little poetry reading. I've read this before in years past, <clears throat> and it popped up in my, when I went back and looked through some of my old stuff, I went, oh, this is a good one. I see why I put it in chapter um, three's lesson, because it really fits well, I think. And I think it's just kind of a little bit of food for thought as we are looking at this, because there are, honestly, there are a variety of topics that if you were taking um, Daniel 3 as a pastor and you were going to preach out of this chapter, there are an awful lot of subjects that could apply into personal life that could be discussed in here, right? Did you guys find that there were things in here that were outside of just the mainstream, these are the facts, this is what's going on, but that there were subjects? Can you, can you share with me some of the thoughts that came to your mind on that? What, what did you, what were some of the subjects that came up that you would, you know, that is really true in my life. I have experienced that. I have been through that. I have um, noticed that or seen that in the lives of others. Are there, are there any things that anybody has specifically that really touched them this week? Silence. Okay, let me read this for you, and then maybe you'll have something more to say on this. Let me read this. Uh, it's called a, tea, a teacup story. An American couple went to England celebrating their 25th wedding anniversary. Both the man and his wife were fanciers of antiques, pottery, and china. When they arrived at Sussex, they passed a little china shop that caught their eye. They instantly stopped, backed up, and went in. The eyes singled out a little teacup on the top shelf. Ah, may I see that? The man asked. I've never seen a teacup like it. It's beautiful, he whispered as he gazed at the cup. Suddenly, the cup answered. Oh, you don't understand. I haven't always been a teacup. There was a time that I was just plain red clay. My master took me and rolled me and patted me over and over. I yelled out, let me alone. <laughs> he only smiled and said, hmm, not yet. <laughs> then I was placed on a spinning wheel, the teacup explained. I was spun round and round and round. Stop it. I'm getting dizzy, I screamed. Then he put me in an oven. I've never felt such heat. I wondered why he wanted to burn me, and I yelled, and I knocked at the door. I could see him through the opening, and I could read his lips as he shook his head. Not yet. Finally, the door did open. Phew. He pulled me up on, onto the shelf, and I began to cool. Oh, that's better, I said. Then suddenly, he began brushing and painting me all over. The fumes were horrible, and I thought I would gag. Stop it, stop it, I cried, and he only nodded. Not yet. Then, to my surprise, he put me back into an oven. Not the first one, but one twice as hot. I knew I would suffocate. I begged, I pleaded, and I screamed and cried. All the time, I could see him through the opening, nodding his head and saying, Not yet. When I thought there was no hope and I would never make it, I was ready to give up. The door opened and he took me out and placed me on a shelf. One hour later, he handed me a mirror and he said, now, look at yourself. And I did. And I said, huh, that's not me. That couldn't be me. I'm beautiful. I want you to remember, he said then, I know it hurt to be rolled and patted, but I had left. if I had left you, you would have... Uh, uh, dried up. I know it made you dizzy to spin you round on the wheel, but if I had stopped, you would have crumbled. 
I know it hurt, and it was hot and disagreeable in the oven, but if I hadn't put you in there, you would have cracked. I know the fumes were bad when I brushed and painted you all over, but you see, if I hadn't done that, you would never have hardened, and there would never have been color to your life. And if I hadn't put you back in that second oven, you would not have survived for very long, and the hardness would not have held. Now you're a finished product. You're what I had in mind all along. I just think that when we go through fires of life, when we go through difficulties, we, we, I think we can feel just like that little teacup. We can feel like our life, our world is spinning around. We can feel like we're going to be choked by the pain, by the, um, the worries of the world. Uh, scripture talks about people who receive the word of God and it's choked out by the worries of the world. And for those of us in faith, the, w what this uh, little poem here talks about is understanding it from the perspective of God, understanding that as we are going through the trials, there's a plan in mind that God sees the end from the beginning. He knows where he's headed with you and I in our lives. We can't always see it at the time. And so the pain and the suffering and the difficulties, the struggles, those are all things that can either turn us and cause us to run or they can, in the end, make us beautiful. It all is on the perspective. It's whether or not you, you are willing to submit yourself into the hand of an of a almighty God, the God most high, and trust him. So how do you think that story might relate to the things that we saw in Daniel this week in chapter 3? Yeah, did did any of you in here think about just the refining work that w God was taking them through as individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? As they were being put to the test, right? As their lives were being handled uh, by God. I mean, think about it from the very beginning of our study. What did we learn about who God is in our lives? What have we seen happen to Israel, the nation, so far? What did God do with them? He gave them over, right, to their captives. Now, we kind of know the reason behind that, though, at, especially after this week. We got to see um, a metaphor that was given to us by Ezekiel. Um, but one of the things that I think that is probably really important in all of the bigger picture here is that Daniel and his, his friends having been put in really difficult situations, were not only enduring in it, but what? They were thriving in it. God was giving grace in the areas where grace could be extended to them. He was giving them favor. It doesn't mean their whole life was cushy, however, right? I'll bet there were still some really tough things in the midst of what they were going through because they were still out away from their homes, having been torn from their families. Many of their friends and family may have even died. So there's the sorrow of having great loss. But yet, in the midst of all that, they walked day by day by day with one focus in their heart, one primary focus, and that was to hold fast to the God of their youth. Yes? 
Yes. I haven't thought I haven't thought about something else too. There was something that was said in one of the sermons I listened to this week where he was saying, you know, Babylon was a world conqueror. He wasn't just conquering Israel. They were also covering, conquering other nations and also bringing them in. Can you imagine the blending of all these various cultures and concepts and just ways of viewing and looking at the world now? Probably the oddest of the odd man's out though was Israel. And that is because of the uniqueness of them as a people, right? That they were, um, you know, in many ways in our world today, we would call them legalistic or we would call them even prudish. Often if you, you know, know pe uh, Jewish people, that often they do have a mindset that they are special, right? And they, they kind of live on that plane of understanding that they have a special place in this world without really going to the full measure of it, which I wish they would have you know, come into faith and get the full picture. But at, at least on a certain level, they are understanding that God has his hand upon Israel, that their nation, and that they have a special and a unique place particularly in the world where they're living, in the Middle East, with all these nations around them that are so oppressive, who are in such darkness. How many have been to Israel uh, before? Have you ever been? Okay, when you, when you were just walking the streets of Israel and you left, for instance, one section of Israel and moved into another, like walking into Canaan, for instance, or walking into Bethlehem, what did you see was the contrast where, when you left Israeli-controlled areas and moved into Palestinian-controlled areas? Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, I, I think that's an interesting statement. You make it that way, that you, it was almost as if the sun is only shining here and not shining there. Now, of course, we know the reality is that's not true, but what a difference between light and darkness in the perspective of being belonging to God and belonging to the world. Yes, and blessing. Yes, it, it, really, wouldn't it be an interesting photo I, if we got any artists in here? I wouldn't, oh, Susan's not with us right now, but Susan, she was an artist. We should have her do a, a, a watercolor painting of that on one side of the road, the green lush, or the other side of the, the dark and the barren. Um, my daughter did a painting many years ago of um, of a city street that was, it almost looked like like England or even Germany with the cobblestone streets, the tall, lots of brick buildings and so forth. And there was all this activity in the streets. Has anybody ever seen this piece I'm talking about? Okay. And um, in it, it showed different people doing different things, but on certain people, there was a light. There, so there, there was a glow or a light about them. And what it was showing was that in the midst of a dark world of firefighters doing their thing, people shopping, and the hustle and bustle, kids going to school, just the normal life thing. You can see that in there, in the midst of darkness, there are 
glimmers of light. This is what God wanted Israel to be, to be a light in the world, a nation that was a light on a, shine, on a hill for the whole world to see. And what did Israel do when it came to their role as a light? Not good. So we looked at that this week. Let's start there because although we kind of covered this, I think already ourselves in other ways, this metaphor that she had us look at this week was, I thought, pretty declarative also. It kind of goes into a slightly different area of the, of the thought, and that is that with Israel, we, those of us who did the kings and prophets study together, there's quite a few in here of you that did that with me, uh, what we found was when Israel came to the point of splitting, becoming a divided kingdom, the kingdoms of the north and the kingdoms of the south, right? So in the north were the ten tribes called Israel, and, or also Samaria is another way they call them sometimes. And then there were the two tribes of the south that was Judah. So let's look at this. This is what we're looking at in this metaphor. Uh-huh. Yes. Well, it, after Solomon, yes. Because of Solomon's sin, right. Because of Solomon's sin, uh, God brought judgment on it. And he said, but for the sake of your father David, I will not c divide the kingdom in your day, but I will do it in the in the a kingdom that follows you, the, the king that follows you. And that's where it was Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and he had made a prophecy to um, Jeroboam, and then Rehoboam caused some troubles, and then there was this big split. You have to go back and read it. It's a long, I don't want to go into all that. But yes, that is exactly right. Okay, so Ezekiel 23 is where we're looking at this. Tell me what you know about Ezekiel. Have you, do you remember back when we set context for doing this study that we looked at Ezekiel. We also looked at the three sieges, correct, of Israel. Who was in the first siege? Daniel. 605 B.C., Daniel was in the first siege. Who follows in the second siege? Ezekiel. And then in the third siege were the rest, the, mo the majority of the poor. And then all that was left on the land at the end of that third siege, this took place over a period of 19 years. The end of that third siege, then everyone was in exile, basically. There were just a few paupers left on the land to, to kind of till the soil and keep the weeds down, right, the jackals and the wild animals from taking over. But they had utterly destroyed the temple and completely destroyed the city by that time, uh, Babylon had. So in a timeline, Ezekiel is going to follow in his captivity Daniel and those who are right now in, in uh, their captivity. So keeping that in mind, this is Ezekiel now writing about this metaphor that he's giving to the people. And he is speaking to them as the prophet of God, and he is warning them concerning things. What I find the most interesting is, remember we said it was a 19-year period of time that God in those 19 years gave these three sieges before he finally completely took Israel off her land, right? Had they repented anywhere along that progression of time, God would have restored them back to their land, correct? Would you, do you believe that that's a, a possibility, a truth? I believe so. And so I, I really truly think that's one of the reasons it was progressive 
at the end. I mean, he had already cast so many off, but at, at eventually, though, with those three sieges and they did not repent, then he had to take them off. So Daniel is right now in, in this metaphor that's been given, he is now proclaiming yet one more opportunity for Israel to turn, to turn back to the God of their fathers, right? So the metaphor in Ezekiel 23 is, uh, it was written um, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have gone into their captivity. Okay, so Ezekiel is going to go into his captivity in the second siege. So it's kind of neat to put the historical context of when this uh, metaphor is given to Israel as a people, right? That there is still opportunity for repentance. There's still opportunity to make a change. And it shows us, I think, something about our God. What does it show us? Yeah, boy. Yeah. There's nobody who wants more for you and I to come to him than him. There's no one who wants more for there to be a right relationship between his people and himself than God himself. And he is so slow because not, not because he's slow, but he's slow because he's patient. Right? Well, he also, I think, by that, leaves them with no excuse, would you say? By the uh, one that we talk about this when we do Revelation, but, you know, why the thousand-year reign with Satan bound for a thousand years? We're going to learn about that later. But why a thousand-year reign with Satan bound? What does that do for humanity when the great white throne judgment appears for mankind? For those who, who fell in, in, their, in their walk, they, they never uh, turned their life over to God, and then they died in their sins. When they go before that great white throne judgment, what is man, what is, what is the responsibility of man, having known then that Satan has been bound for a thousand years? Yeah, well, it wasn't the devil that made you do it, right? I mean, we always thought it was, because... Flip Wilson said so. <laughs> that <laughs> the devil made me do it, <laughs> right? But, <laughs> but it wasn't the devil that made me do it. It was your own choices. And I think that it's interesting that even with this particular metaphor that's given to us here, we see God's patience, and there is no, they're left without excuse. Because they were given opportunity, they were told over and over, their prophets came to them, continually, even up to the very end of this. And then after, remember, Ezekiel also continues to, to uh, prophesy and preach to the people in his captivity. For those who did Ezekiel with me, you know this, how he rebuked the, the, the 
elders and the leaders of Israel, even in their captivity, they were still in their rebellion. It was, it's very sad. Okay, so there were two women that were uh, presented as, and what were their names? Oh, Hola, O-H-O-L-A-H, and who was she? Samaria. You also could call her Judah. Oops, sorry, Samaria. You could call her Israel. Sorry. Wrong one. My brain. It's okay. Number four. It's on the paper correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then, uh, the sister's name was? Did anybody look those up by chance? Oh, good. Tell me. Good girl. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Okay. My tent is within me, yes. So taking it deeper before, I mean... Uh, uh, almost seems a progress a progression does it actually in that in knowing that now do, do you see a relationship between what she's told us about the names and about how God pictures these two sisters what does he say um, about the first sister yeah okay so her her sin a whole Okay, so what is her sin? Her sin is she played the harlot, right? Okay. She played the harlot. And she did so when? In verse 5? And when she was mine. Now, what does that mean? If you think about the concept of the harlot, it's also another it's another way of calling them an adulteress, right? What does an adulterous person do? They're cheating. Who are they cheating on? Yes, there was. So this was a, a relationship, a wife that had a husband, and she said while she was mine, she played the harlot, right? So she, while she was still mine. And uh, it says she lusted for who? She lusted after the Assyrians. Right. And the Egyptians before that. So what does that tell you then? Um, even in her marriage then relationship, when she belonged to God, she had already had an illicit relationship previously with Egypt, right, as, an, as a people. And so what does that tell you about this relationship? I, you know, because I do think that, that when we move into a study about the law and, and Israel coming into the land and they, and they go with Moses, they go to the mountain, they make this covenant, um, what does it tell you about the, this kind of a congregational covenant? This is a corporate covenant this is a 
a national covenant. It's not an individual thing, right? And therefore, what is the problem with that kind of relationship with God? Right. Uh, sounds like she always had a divided heart then, didn't she? Even though she came into covenant with God, Israel made this covenant with her, with, with God, she never was fully committed to it. She was still looking, looking back. Do you, how many verses did we read in the Old Testament where it says that they looked back to Egypt or they went back to Egypt? And what did God tell Israel and particularly the kings about going down to Egypt? Do not do it. Do not go there to procure your horses, meaning don't trust in them for your strength and your power and your provisions. You know, of, of all things, Solomon uh, went to where to get the timbers to build the, temp the temple? To Tyre. Yes, to Lebanon. She went to the king of Tyre, made a contract, and brought wood in to build the temple. So he went to his enemies to bring in uh, and procure... Uh, the materials even, rather than using the things that were already within their own land that God had provided for them. It, it is an amazing storyline when you start pulling in all these other little stories or bits of information about this relationship. So when it says that she lusted after the Assyrians, and when it, you read that, she also had this lingering love for Egypt and a commitment there that caused her to have a divided heart. And when you study the... the um, the study, the, the study that they have on David, King David, it says a, an undivided heart. He had a heart after God. It was a, a heart for the Lord only. So here we see that she uh, lusted after the Assyrians. And therefore, because she was lusting after the Assyrians and after others, she had not forsaken what? She did not... Forsake her harlotries. That was in verse 8. And therefore, what happened? Mm -hmm. Well, God says, if that's what you want, I'm going to give it to you. And let me tell you something. There are many times in our lives that we have a heart that is lusting for something. We want it so badly, you know. God, please give this to me. And it becomes a focus. I read um, another article on this. Oh, it was in a book that I was reading last night. Um, a Sunday I picked up a Sunday school book this week, and in it they're doing Daniel. And in this, the commentary that was written on this subject in, of Daniel 3, it talked about them lusting after the things of the world, desiring so much sometimes the things of the world that those become your gods that your love and focus on God and trust in him for giving you the provisions that he knows are good for you and the things that you should have. And then you get so tied up in them that you lose sight, that you put God behind your back, that you forsake him in many ways and you seek after the things of the world. And this dis divided heart that can come from this is something that you and I, even as Christians, we must guard against. It is, it is, although there is the, the struggle that happens with the unbeliever concerning 
becoming faithfully committed to God, but there's also the struggle the believer has in our in our own personal walk with the Lord. And for us, what we need to focus on is that part mostly, because we want personal application to what we're looking at here today. And although we are not going to ever, if you truly in faith, you're never going to truly forsake God because he will hold you. But you have to be on top of it. It is something that you must guard against. And here we see what happened with the Syrians. They actually went into a relationship with God with an already divided heart. They already were not fully on board with putting God most high as their uh, one true love. Right? And so all their, though they were in relationship with him, they kept thinking back to what they had before or to what they saw in other places. Their eyes were distracted rather than having their eyes set upon God. So what is the what is the the what is the right word the the counter to that? What is it that you and I do that can counter those kinds of anxieties? That I mean, the, listen, all you have to do is watch TV for half an hour, and all the commercials. You got to have this car. You got to go on this vacation. You need to have this great body. You got to. I mean, there's all these things that the world just throws out there to to distract us, and they, those are very superficial. But boy, are we superficial? Are we? Oh, yeah. My neighbor's got a nicer house. Their garden is beautiful. Their car is bright red, shiny. You know, right? So, I mean, it's really hard. It's very easy to become very, very superficial, right? And so when we look at the example in this metaphor, the very first one is this Ahola and that the sin, the real sin that was there for her was she, she began relationship with God with a divided heart. Now, I would pray that no one here has that divided heart. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. There you go. There you go. That's exactly what I was trying to pull out here. This is the this is the at the core of humanity. These are the issues about everything. When you and I look at the news and watch the things going on, what is their number one p- problem? Is they're power hungry, they're greedy, right? And they want personal glorification in some way. Yeah. There you go. That That's exactly right. So guess what? We never change, ever, until we meet the one. We don't, as, hu- as a human being, because why we're born in Adam, we're born in sin, and we all have this flesh issue that we have to deal with. And... Um, if you don't actually appropriately deal with it, it comes back to pull you away from your relationship with God. The word keeps coming back, and I think it's in my head. 
Lord Jesus had said, no man having put his hand to the plow looking back gets the kingdom. There you go. That's very good. That's exactly right. So, you know, it, it what is the what is the solution in the in our relationship with God that actually keeps our eyes on him and not on the world? What do we do to stop this kind of thing ha from creeping in even into the life of a believer? I mean, not that we would ever be totally taken away. We certainly are not. The, the demonstration here is about an unsaved nation not walking with their God. And as Christians, that is not our case. We have entered in. We have been sealed by the Spirit. We have an assurance of salvation. However, are we still vulnerable to the temptations of having our eyes diverted? To, to having our eyes think back of our youth maybe and the things that we used to do that were so much fun that were probably not appropriate in some cases. Uh, or, or for looking and, and viewing things like TVs or, or even ha watching our friends and our neighbors and the successes that they have or whatever, and you kind of lust after that. You, you have an envy and a, and a desire for something more than you already have, and there's no satisfaction in your soul that God has blessed you and has placed you right where you are in whatever status. I mean, really, I, I bet in this room we've got a wide variety of status as far as the world is concerned. And are you finding your contentment first and foremost in relationship with God? doesn't mean you can't work to do better for yourself. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually, that's a good thing because that actually shows the... I think the, the qualities that God wants us to have as Christians. But, but the satisfaction of the heart and the undivided heart, however, is the one thing that God will not compromise on. And it's the one thing that we should not compromise on. And so as we're looking at, at what happened with Israel and, what, and, the di and the demonstration that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give to us in this is our goal is to look at this and to say of ourselves, where do I stand in my relationship with God? Am I like a hola, looking back, looking around? Are my eyes diverted? Or am I going to be more like Shabrak, Meshach, and Abednego, who had a steadfastness in faith? All right, so, all right, so we have a hola sin and that, that she had been given. Now, this one is interesting, though. Then we have her sister, Aholabah. Right, and what does it tell us about her? In particular, I want you to see verse 11. What, did she, what does it say there? She was more corrupted. And what else does it tell us about her? She saw it. She looked at what had happened with her sister. Listen, the, the northern tribes went into their captivity, captivity to Assyria in what year? 722 B.C. When did Daniel go into their captivity? 605. 100? You okay? 130 years? <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, folks, but really? You watched your sister go into her captivity, and she was off of her land for 130 years? And even though you saw... Listen, you got to put the whole, the whole picture together. God had covenant. What did God say? Obey and be blessed and live on the land and prosper or disobey and what? 
cast you off. It's a picture, right? This is not a covenant of, for salvation. This is a covenant to be a light in the world. And he's saying, if you'll stay on, if you will obey me, if you'll follow me, if you'll, if you will project who I am to the world properly, I will prosper you, bless you, you will stay on the land. But if you don't, if you in any way distort who I am to the world, gone, right? And that's what happened to her sister. 130 years, if your math is right. <laughs> Ah, that's interesting. Forgotten. Ahola. Uh, uh, forgotten. Well, meaning that her sister, Judah, had not remembered her. Right. right. Had, forgotten. had forgotten her. It's like, oh, she's, she's dead and gone. Oh, well. Yeah. Right? Forget the glory years 130 years before, right? Yeah. Yes. And you know what? This is true everywhere in the world, even yet today, right? That that we have enemies out there. I mean, we look at the the treaties or the peace agreements or whatever that are being made, even in our world right now today. You know, it's it's kind of like when when our governors, when our our political uh, leaders make these agreements, and yet you will always hear them ca caveat. But right, yes, it's good. Yes, we want it. Yes, we're going forward. But doesn't mean we're going to be foolish about this. We have learned from the experiences of years, and this is wisdom. If you had a a leader who will say yes, but then you know that what they're saying is, I'm watching, right? Because if you have a conqueror of a nation come in and, and take over your land and they've, and they've seized you, how many of those conquerors ever do anything to promote you as a nation and bring you back up and build you up and make you big and strong? No. They will put you, they will put you back in limited capacities. Now, i got to say one thing. America is one of the few nations that does that. We go in and conquer lands, and then we're there to support them. And we, yes, we get some bennies out of it by being present on their land for strategic, you know, locations. But we don't run their government. We give it back to them and let their people have their their own way. That is a godly way of handling, you know, the situations of the world. But most kingdoms do not do that. I don't know of any kingdom. If Russia comes in and takes over a plot of land like Croatia, do you think they're ever going to give it back willingly? Or the Ukraine, I'm sorry, Ukraine, yes. So it, it is not something that, ha that's how good my geography is. Uh, <laughs> but yes, no, it's mine. It's mine. And you can't trust them. They're, yeah, and they are never going to be in it for the welfare of those people, right? And so, and so you're right. Why would Israel once... Uh, Assyria came in and made these friends with the with the people on the land, so to speak. Why would they ever get to a place where they were lulled to sleep in this, right? They began to trust them and to not heed the warnings of God and to not understand the principles of God either. 
Okay, so it says about her what else? She had been defiled by the Babylonians. And she then what happened with her after she, after she realized she had been defiled by them? Yes. Yes, the Babylon. Yeah. And they'll be better. They'll be. Yes. Yes. Isn't that really a naivety there that is like, how naive are you that you really think that this nation will be any different than any other nation in the way that they deal with you? Particularly with when you think about the spiritual battle in the world that was going on. I mean, surely they couldn't have been without a real understanding of spiritual warfare even that was taking place in all of this. I mean, now we talk about spiritual warfare uh, quite often now that when we see the church attacked, when we see individuals uh, you know, in their, in their family lives attacked by the world, we can see the spiritual warfare that's going on. Surely Israel as a nation sees spiritual warfare, right? Yes. Yes. Yes, I know. And you can make those pictures look really nice. How many family portraits do you see? The whole family sitting there so sweet, right? <laughs> and as soon as they snap the picture, the, the little brother reaches over and slugs his other brother. And, you know, I mean, you get a fight going on. Yes. Yes. They had information about the sovereignty of God. They had information about eternity and this world. Mm-hmm. And yet, they forgot. Her. That's exactly what. So in verse 35, what does it say that ultimately Aholaba had done? She forgot God. <laughs> And that was, to me, kind of a profound part of that. I'm, I've got it on my on my chart here. I'm going to skip it up here for space reasons. But she forgot God and she cast him behind her back. That is a real deliberate action. It's not like she just, oops, I forgot. She forgot and purposely cast him, put placed him aside, put him on the shelf, so to speak, right, in verse 35. Okay, and then it says... Um, in 31, what had she done then? Yeah, so what had she not done? She didn't repent, and concerning her sister, she didn't what? She did not learn. She had not seen the example of what had happened to her sister. She did not remember it. She not only forgot God, she purposely cast him behind her, and she trudged forward. She kept her eyes on, diverted in the world. She saw the, the, the shiny objects out there, and those are the things that and the glimmer, the power, the prestige, the positions in the world. She wanted all those things. I'm sorry, this is hard for you, isn't it? It's too, it's too low. So she walked in the way of her Therefore, then, what did God do? So God gave her over, right? 
is a passage in Romans chapter 1, the second half of that chapter. I think it's starting around 15 or 16 right in there. It talks about that kind of a concept from the perspective of people um, of this world. What, does anybody remember what that's talking about there? What does it say? Yeah, people who, and this is follows on. They had the prophets. They had the law. They knew it. But what did they do? They knew the truth, but they forsook it, right? And therefore, what did God do? Gave them over to a deluded mind to do the things that they should not. Yeah, really? really? <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he wasn't even gone, but for a few days. <laughs> we, I love it. Yeah, because when they make that covenant with God, you know, he's up there and he's sprinkling and, and they're saying, yes, all that you say, we will do it. Yes. <laughs> You're right. That lasted all of 10 seconds, right? <laughs> Until you walk. Funny. Okay. Right. Okay. So then this week, so that kind of set the the standard for us to kind of think about the fact that in this metaphor that, by the way, was written by Ezekiel, this is written just before the second siege that's going to Daniel and his people for this for Jerusalem. Right. Uh, this is while Daniel's in captivity. Them saying, "You've not learned a thing from your sister." And by the way, he doesn't say it in this, but Israel is already beginning to go the way of her sister in judgment from God, right? They're about to be given into the hands of the Babylon. They've already seen the first wave take place. And he's warning them. You didn't learn. You didn't learn. You didn't learn. Do do any of you guys have kids like that? I do. I have one in particular that it does not matter. How, I mean, I wish I could, when he was little, especially if I could have just had a recording and I would just start the day, record, and <laughs> honey, sit down, listen to this, you know, because I had to say the same things over and over every day almost, right? And I just, it just felt like they did not learn from the previous day, the experiences that... Yeah, right. What? What? <laughs> I know, exactly. I know. Right? Yes. And you know what? That is, and that's a very perfect demonstration of exactly what God was doing with Israel in the three sieges. And he said, it's coming, it's coming. Oh, three strikes and you're out. Maybe that's where that came from. <laughs> right? What God requires. Now, let's go on and talk to him. He says, one of the things in that we looked at where it, it was on uh, day three, I think, homework, right? Where we looked at Exodus and Deuteronomy. We looked at, she said, the book of Don, Deuteronomy is often considered a second giving of the law. It's God's final word through Moses to the children of Israel as he prepares them to enter into Canaan, the land. He covenanted them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for an everlasting possession, a land 
filled with idolaters. Read Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 31, and then list what you learned about idols and man's temptation to worship them. Now, we last week, we looked at um, um, the idea of the difference, the contrast between the Babylonian worship of, of gods and Israel's worship of their one true God and what the distinction was. And one of the things that I, I really emphasized strongly was how the, the Babylonian worship system, they would take a God who, yes, maybe came from the heavens and, yes, began as a spirit, but yet then what would God do or what would the people do? They would take their God, they would carve out an image, right, or a statue. It could be very large. It could be small. And then this image then would be put into a, temp into a temple, right? And in doing that, then they believed that their God of the heavens became embodied within this statue. And therefore, what has now happened to their God that came from the spirit realm? He's now contained. He's finite. He's, he has, he, you're able to touch him and see him. And therefore, then they would daily feed them and give them libations. And they would have chariots for them. They would have um, barges. And they would take them places. They would escort them to the battlefields and all these things. But what a distinction because there, in, in the, the system that, of Israel that God had gave to Israel concerning how they would worship their God, we look now back at Deuteronomy and Exodus and um, those passages to see where God was really clear about what you were not to do concerning him, right? So again, what does it say in uh, Exodus 20, verse 3? Yeah. In, Ox in Exodus 20, though, what did he say that he did not want them to do? What did he do for them, and therefore, what were they not to do? They have no other gods before me. And he says, why does he say you're not to have any other gods? Because I did what for you? I brought you out of the land. I brought you out of the What was in that land? All kind well, slavery and what kind of worship? All kinds of gods. And all their gods were contained as idols of some, in some form or fashion, right? And he says those are, and what Paul says when he goes into, in the, in the book of Acts, when he goes down into the Agora, right, in, in uh, Athens, he says, I see that you worship many gods. And you even have a, a plaque to an unknown god, right? But I know a god, I have a god, that is not contained by anything that's made by human hands, right? He does not live in houses made by human hands. Okay, so that whole scenario, that whole picture now should be expounded in your mind of understanding through what we're looking here in this particular study to understand what the Babylonians did, what the Egyptians did, how they confined their gods into, into literal uh, idols, physical idols, which... which basically made them finite and impotent in many ways. And their gods were gods of what? what? What were they gods over? One was over the water. One was over the the sun, the moon, the stars. One was over... Le they had a leather god of all things. A god for the leather, you know. I mean, I remember that one from the Revelation study. <laughs> there were different guilds, the leather workers, the copper workers, the, you know, and they each had their own god, and that god would have 
uh, things sacrificed to it, and therefore one of the problems in the, the letters to the churches was that if people joined those guilds, it w what they were doing then was engaging in idolatry because it was part of the system of being in a guild in that day. Boy, I tell you, this, just knowing these truths really helps you understand what the problems are in, in the world here. He says to them, I brought you out. There you go. Yes, he did. And yes, exactly. Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. The creation itself, the order of creation debunks all of the Egyptian gods too. That's another really interesting study. Okay, so I brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, there are to be no gods before me. And he goes on in both Exodus and Deuteronomy and says to them that what should they not do? Do not make any graven image. You shall make no graven images. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. There are some people that are still, and in our, in our world on the whole, there are still lands that have idolatry, a Buddha or a whatever, that they literally feed it and give libation offerings to it and bow down and worship before it. They have physical idols that, that are there. But God said, because I took you out, I brought you out, therefore, basically, I own you. You are my possession. He said that in that, in that uh, passage there. He said, uh, I brought you out to be a possession for myself, my own possession, my own people. And then he said, therefore, because I brought you out, I rescued you from that slavery. I own you. You are, my, you are my people. And he says, you are to have no gods before me. You shall not make graven images. You shall not make idols. Why not? What does it say in Deuteronomy 4.19? There's a so that statement. There you go, drawn away and worship them. Why is that? What tends to happen is if you get an idol before you, your eyes get off of the one that you're actually to worship, who he is, his, instead, instead of understanding God. Now, remember we talked about in, in uh, chapter, uh, was it one, where we were talking about the distinction between the, the, the Babylonian gods and the god uh, of Daniel, right, was that their gods were finite, but Daniel's god was infinite. Oh, it's in chapter 3, where he's then called the god of what? 
heaven. And that distinction in name change to from the Lord and God in chapter 1, then in chapter 2 he's called the, the God of heaven, is to identify his characteristics and qualities. So what it does is it, it teaches you that at this point what God is trying to say to his people and to you and I as the readers now of this written word, he says, I want you to understand I am unique and I am different from the gods of this earth. There are gods of this earth that people make up. They're not even gods at all to begin with. But I want you to understand that I am unique from them. You do not put me, you do not make a graven image. You do not contain me as they have done to their gods. Because when you do that, what happens? You, you have distorted who I am, distorted the picture the understanding of who God really is because by confining him, you limit him. And what is our God? How, tell me the qualities and characteristics of what you know about who God is. Omniscient? Omnipresent. omnipresent. Now, how can he be omnipresent if he's in an idol? He's not in an idol. That's right. That's why he says no graven images. You do not make a graven image of me because you, if you do that, you distort who I really am. Yes. Omniscient? Yes. All those things. Yeah. Immutability. I mean, all the trans. Oh, here, let me just read you this little piece. This is the Bible knowledge commentary. He, he goes on to say, you're, you're going to be drawn away to worship them, for God is a jealous God. He's hurt by your adulterous hearts, right? In Ezekiel, he told us that, and also in Exodus. But this is what the Bible commentary says. He says, God rescued them from an idolatrous land where the image of dozens of false gods were worshipped. The single most important thing that set Israel apart was that God, their God, did not allow them to make an image to worship. By this command, he carefully guards his own spiritual nature. To make a graven image, even if it represented God, would contain him as all false idols do to their gods. Israel was never to limit their God in this way, for it would call his transcendence, which means this. I, I had to look it up. Transcendence, ability to live above and beyond the material world into question. It would call it into question because why? In our minds, he's an idol. He lives there. I go there every day to see. That's why people go to the temples and worship every day because that's where their God is. He can't come to them. They have to go to it. So in the picture that God was given to Israel was saying, do not make a graven image of me. I am not contained in that manner. I am omnipresent. I'm all-powerful. I'm all-knowing. But I am also above the things which I created, and I am in the midst of the things that I created. And so then he says, Israel was never to limit her God in this way. Um, it, would, it would make them corrupt in that they would themselves embrace a false understanding of who God is and would then give a false represent, uh, representation of who their God is to the world. This law was vital to retain the standard of sound doctrine concerning who God is. I added that sentence. Did you recognize my wording? <laughs> Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In this, people create God. Yes. In a way, it's flipping that over. Th th it is. And in essence, who becomes the real God? Bingo. Yes. 
We're right back to the, the original sin. Okay, so what God requires is that you not be drawn away to worship other things than him, right? That God, and he says on there, for God is a jealous God. Okay, so that's in Exodus 20, verse 5. And your, and your adultery hurts the heart of God. So are we in danger of this? This is going to take us to where uh, James was talking about earlier. I, well, you looked at 1 Corinthians 10, Colossians 3, um, and I have some other verses we can also look at. Galatians 5 was another one. What did you learn about idolatry for us today? Now, because we don't necessarily, especially not in America, we don't have idols that just sit somewhere and we go and bow down to them. Well, most of us don't, right? I don't have one of those. Most of us in this room don't have one of those. But are we in danger of having any form of idolatry creep into our lives, even though we don't have the form that we bow down to? Daily we do. So what did we see in 1 Corinthians or in Colossians? In the, oh, let's start with 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10. Well, how about if we start with Colossians? That's a good one. Let's go to Colossians 3. Because this is the, the most straightforward statement. Uh, we looked at 3, 5 to 11, right? What did you see there? about idolatry. Yes. So we are to put those things aside. We are to uh, literally put on, which is the lingo of covenant making, isn't it? It's putting on the identity of Christ himself, but also you know, at least symbolically in our minds, putting off the other. Where what we saw, um, Abola, Ab Abola, Ab whatever her name is, this is the other sister, she literally put God behind her back. She forgot God. We are to forget what? All our lustly flesh, <laughs> all the things that that draw us and our affections away. So what is, what does that tell you then about? Idolatry. What can become idolatry in our lives then? Lustly flesh. Anything of the lustly. I want to look at a couple of verses. These were not in um, in our homework, but I want to look at it. We want to look at them anyway. Second uh, Peter two, uh, thirteen to twenty two. Oh, let's start with First John though. First John two fifteen and sixteen. Who wants to read that for us? First John two fifteen and sixteen. You'll know it when you, as soon as you see it, you're going to know it. Yes. Okay. So there's a very good demonstration, I think, for us in the New Testament. When it comes to the subject of idolatry, what is it that can... Uh, become for us an idol that may not be a physical form, but it has its own physical form in other manifestations, which is anything that is the lust of your eyes. If you have, if you have a beautiful uh, car or boat or or 
if you're just all, if shoes are the world to you, you know, you like shoes and purses, and they become, they can become a God to you. Your children can become a God to you if they are your all in all, and you, and they take the highest priority over, it's not that children shouldn't be a priority, but they can't take the place of God in your life. They can't take priority over your relationship with God. You can't put God aside while you, you know, Run, run and do everything with and for your child. Emergencies are another story, but but just the idea of having anything that takes the place of your affections, the affections of your heart, and the dedication of your heart, you're going to be a far better mother if you have full dedication to God first, right? And that's the way, that's the order it should be. Okay, yes. There, there you go. My Bible's on my phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but but you're you're right. The point is is rightly taken, and that is where does your heart and your mind go first thing in the mornings? You know, when you first get up in the morning, you know, is your first thought, "Oh Lord, help me get my feet out of bed," <laughs> right? Um, but you realize, but what you're doing is calling on the Lord. I mean, I, I kind of say that jokingly, but it's but is your heart bent towards your relationship with God immediately? Is He always present on your mind? I think about those passages that talk about uh, uh, pray without ceasing. Well, a true relationship with God, your whole life is a prayer, and is and it you are a walking prayer position before the Lord all all the days of your life with him if you are in true relationship with the Lord, if you're in a good, healthy relationship. And in that way, you're right. What is the first thing that comes to your mind in the morning? Is it the things of the Lord? Or it, or is it something else that drives you? Anything in the world that distracts you and takes your heart away from God. Where is your priority about your schedule? Um, do you guys remember the the demonstration of a jar with what was it uh, big rocks, little rocks, pebbles, and sand, right? And so what do you put into the jar first is going to matter because if you start with the little the little things, the things that feel like they're emergencies and pressing and urgent, uh, but if you don't put the big rock in first, all the other things are never going to fit. But if you put the big rock in first, then the others will still fit also. And, and the, the picture in that imagery is that your relationship with God is the big rock. He's to be the rock that goes first into your jar. Everything else in your day fills in around it, right? But if you do it in reverse, what happens? There's no room for God. You get that jar filled up, and all of a sudden that rock won't fit down in there now. And it really is a great visual of, of understanding relationship with God and idolatry idolatry can be that the distractions of the world let's go on and read another one what about um let's look at this one second peter two it's uh let's just do 13 to 22 it's kind of a long passage and then someone else look up second timothy 2 4 we probably should do that one first second timothy 2 4 who's got that one thank you diane because that's a good one it talks about what we just said You can start earlier if you want, yes. This is good and acceptable in the 
Son of God, our Savior. He desires by them to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Timothy 2.4. But that's a really good verse. That was a really good verse, however. I liked that one. <laughs> that's okay. 2-4. Yes, 2 Timothy 2-4. No soldier is active in active service in harness himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. Okay, so right, so this the, it's an analogy of a soldier, and it uses him as a demonstration. Who, if he's enlisted as a soldier to serve his country or to serve his commander, right? It says about him, no soldier who's engaged in that relationship as a soldier gets himself what entangled in the affairs of life. Why not? You can't do his job. You know what? You, a soldier, I wrote some little notes to myself, single-mindedness single in duty and devotion. They have to have that. My husband was military. He wasn't a soldier. He was Air Force. But still, this concept of understanding that, it was the first and foremost thing, and it, literally including your family, if the military called you, you got up that morning and you were out the door, and it didn't matter what else was going on at home. Your first duty was to your country, and that's where you had to go and what you had to do. And as a military family, we fully understood that. Um, the second thing was there was a rigorous discipline and an attention to details that had to be there in the life of a soldier. He had to be constantly prepared, kind of like the virgins and the oil, always prepared. Understanding that the bridegroom is coming, you must be prepared. A soldier must be prepared. Have his bag, his emergency bag, packed and ready to go so that at any moment he could leave. This is the kind of attitude toward the one whom you serve that God is looking. He is saying, are you single-mindedly committed to me? Are you prepared at all times to do my will and to, on the spot, in season and out of season, give the word, Right? And then he says, it's also, un, it's basically unquestioning obedience. How many of us sometimes read the word of God and we don't understand? And we think, <laughs> well, that, there you go. I don't like that one. I think that was Paul's opinion, right? Instead of, oh, that's the inerrant word of God and I may not like it. And I may not, and I may not even fully understand. There are plenty of passages in my early faith walk that I would read and I didn't understand them. But I knew enough to understand that if God said it, it was true. And if God said it, I should do it. Now, it wasn't always easy to do it, but my heart's desire should be there to want to do that. And as a soldier, that is the expectation, that you do not question the, the commanding officer. You do what he says, right? Okay, so in that way, idolatry is one who's the opposite of that. They're not the one that is prepared, who is wholehearted, who is single-minded, who is disciplined, who is um, uh, completely obedient. They don't do those things. The, rather, people who are committed to idolatry, maybe they're single-minded, but they're single-minded about the thing that they love. You know, they can't wait to get to the quilting room. Got to go. See you later. Right? 
I don't do that. <laughs> You'll know that because I'm still three and a half years now into the quilt and the binding's still not on that quilt. <laughs> One single little quilt. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it can be anything. It can be any, whatever your, th you guys know what they are. You know what it is that draws your heart away sometimes from doing what you should versus what you know, the Lord would like it from you. All right, so that was in in uh, Second Timothy too. Now let's look at Second Peter because what Second Peter does is I think it kind of expounds on what was said to us in First uh, Corinthians ten and also in Colossians three. All right, somebody read. Who had that one? For Second uh, Peter two thirteen to twenty two. Okay, thank you. Wow, okay, that's far enough probably. Is that 22 or? That's 19, that's probably far enough. So by whatever a man is uh, overpowered or overcome, to that he is enslaved. And if you're enslaved to it, it has become your idol. And so I just, I thought those were pretty clear verses that took what we looked at in our homework and kind of expounded them a little bit to some more practical ways that in our personal lives how do does idolatry slip into us today because we're looking at idolatry in this in this segment here of chapter three but it almost kind of feels foreign to us in many ways because we are you know no at least at this point in our history and trust me it's coming a day when this is not going to be true but right now in history we don't have an idol set up that we must bow down that we are required by law to bow down and worship to we still have freedom to to make choices in those regards. But it is easy for us to make allow our own idols to slip into our personal lives by the things that we become enslaved to. And if it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the prideful ways of our life, then you can become a slave to that. The things which you lust after become your idols. And so this is what consequences for idolatry then. What are we talking about? What are the consequences? I'm going to put that on here. Consequences for idolatry. In the New Testament. Yeah. You become enslaved, okay. 
and you kind of could take that one back to where he says, I brought you out of slavery, right? Of those slaveries to those physical idols. And now, therefore, you'd have no gods before me. But what happens if you get entangled in the world? You become enslaved again, right? To the things that, that draw you. Yeah, I added that on to there because I thought about how um, you know, obviously a true believer is not going to become entangled in that manner. We're not. But it's a warning that, number one, you should always be examining your life. And if you are someone who's become so entangled that you have become a slave to it, and it's not a momentary act of, of, of sin, but it's a habitual lifestyle sin, then you need to examine your life to say whether or not I'm actually in the faith. But if it's a momentary act of sin, then 1 John chapter 1 applies. That is that you go, go to the Lord and confess your sin, and you wash it away by his grace again. And that is the sanctification work of God in you as a believer. So I just don't ever want you to, to, to leave anyone uh, doubting that in salvation, you can literally become enslaved and be drawn away for long periods of time. It does not happen that way in the Christian faith. Why not? What does Ezekiel teach us about the new covenant? Ezekiel 36, 27. It's, he tells you that he's going to remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. He's going to place his spirit within you and then do what? Cause you to what? Walk in my precepts and my statutes. Because you have the Holy Spirit, there will be that constant... Um, Spirit, Galatians says it also, you know, if in fact you have the Spirit, what should you be doing? Walking by the Spirit. Because Galatians says, I'm going to give you my Spirit and it will cause you to walk. But what must you keep doing? Always examining your life regularly. Have I made any idols in my life? And if you have the Holy Spirit, you'll want to. You'll constantly be saying, I need to keep this in check. I really am... I want to be challenged by my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is another reason you need iron sharpening iron in your life. Um, and you need close enough relationships that people can say, hey, hey, buddy, that ain't cool. Or, hey, hey, sweetie, <laughs> knock that off, right? You know, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't act that way. Don't have that attitude. That's, you know, um, because every one of us, right, I know that in my own life that there are times that I can slip into a negative place or I can slip into a despair, right? Because I see the world crushing me, uh, you know, about things. But then my brothers or my sisters in Christ come alongside and they lift me. Or the Holy Spirit comes and gives me conviction. And if I'm being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, then I will turn. What did... Uh, Aholaba do? Did she turn when she saw the things that were going on with God in the in the relationship for her sister? Yeah, she she literally dug her hole deeper. Right? But you and I are not to be that way. In Christ Jesus, we have an abiding spirit which will constantly nag at you when you're out of line, you know it. I'm sorry, you know it. And there's that that little tweaking that goes on, that little nudging that says Katie, 
you need to get this right. Katie, you need to make a correction here, right? And when you, when you turn then and make a repentance, go to God in prayer, confess that you have sinned, then he will wash you clean again. And then you start a new day. So consequences for, for idolatry, though, if you don't keep those in check, is you can become enslaved again. Believers don't stay there, but unbelievers, if you're not actually a believer, you can get there and stay there. Um, what does Colossians 3, 6 tell us about the consequences for idolatry? Now, this is talking about the unsaved world. There you go. There you go. There you go. So there's our explanation again about how the, the simple things of the world can actually draw us away. And these are the things that can become idols in your, in your life. The, greed, the, 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 the greediness, the, the passions of life. The, you know, some of them seem so benign. And so, uh, you know, like this should never be a problem, right? But they can become a problem. You know, whatever it is, if you're, if you're into bowling, it can become your God, right? If you're into cross-stitching, it can become your God. Anything that distracts you. So by definition, idolatry is anything that takes your devotion away from God. So n then we're ready to talk about what we see with Daniel, what happened in our Daniel story. I know. <laughs> Idolatry is anything that takes your devotion away from God. Okay, so that's summing it up for us. That's our, in, our final interpretation on that. And I, I have a whole lot more on my list here. Um, uh, as believers, we may fall into momentary distractions, but to be overcome or entangled as a habitual lifestyle should never happen. Those in faith have the Holy Spirit who convicts us and draws us back to God. So th that is the assurance that you have. That's the comfort that you have is to know that that is a possibility and it's, you're not going to ever stumble in such a way that God abandons you, that God casts you out of the land. In the new covenant, it's a covenant of grace, and it's a covenant where he seals you with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So you're not going to ever have him abandon you or, or reject you. But you still have relationship, right, with God, and you still have a requirement to honor God in covenant. Yes. What is it? Is it 1 Corinthians uh, 11? It says about those who approach the Lord's Supper to take the Lord's Supper, and if they do so in an unworthy manner. And he says, for this reason, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you have fallen asleep. So talking about the possibilities of God's disciplining and even judging a believer who does not examine himself regularly and make sure that he is being obedient to the covenant that he's in. Okay, so let's go now and let's just do a real quick run through for Daniel chapter 3. Daniel, so we're going to basically outline Daniel.
so that you have a pretty good idea of how this is done. Now, in out, outlining, basically all you're doing is you're going to go through paragraph by paragraph and title it and see the sequential order of events. And as we go through that, we've got about 30 minutes to do this. I think it's plenty of time. But what we want to do is we want to see the circumstances that were going on with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what we want to see is how there can be victory for servants. And for you and I, this is more than a possibility. It's an absolute truth. Uh, what does it say that in Christ Jesus th that um, there is... Um, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says, neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor you know, that long list. And he says, nothing can separate you and I from the love of God. We have the victory in Christ Jesus, right? Thank, thank God in Christ Jesus we have that victory. Okay, so this is what we see through the demonstration of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? It, it was pretty straightforward. Let's let's start. Verses 1 through 3, what's happening as, as the intro to this uh, account, this record? Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has made an image, and what has he commanded the people to do? Yeah, he has commanded um, worship of that, right, of his image that he set up. And there are so many things about that image to talk about now. What in the world do you think caused him to make this image? The dream. Apparently, this is after the dream story in chapter 2, right? Um, in, the, in chapter 2, there was an image in his dream. And what part of it was gold? Just the head. But in this scenario that follows it, what does he do? He makes the whole thing made of gold. Isn't that amazing? Okay, uh, so there's nothing wrong with that picture, right? I just want you to know I'm the whole statue, right? He was really exalting. He felt really good about being the head and being the best and of the qualities of all the alloys that were represented there. He liked that, and so then he took a, a step for, further in his arrogance and his pride. And boy, oh boy, in next chapter, we're going to get to see that arrogance and pride humbled, right? Maybe not. Right, right, exactly. That, you're, I mean, really, that is kind of, first of all, the, the idea of uh, death to his kingdom and the finality of that, that it would probably definitely be a problem for anyone, but especially someone who is not in faith, that does not trust or believe in God most high, right? And so the idea that your kingdom is going to come to an end, it's like, ah, uh, no, I don't think so, right? <laughs> Somehow it seems like all of those things could have been going around in his head. Okay, so then in, um, oops. I missed a section here. Hold on. Let me go back to my observation worksheet. What's our next paragraph? I probably did. You're right. That's what my problem is. <laughs> I just, okay, there we go. Now it makes sense. 8 to 12. <laughs> Very good. Typo. Okay, in 8 to 12, what, did, uh, what was the response then of our three young men? to this command. Nope, not going to do it. And this, what does the text say that they did? 
Yeah. And, yeah. But he, he said, um, oops, wrong chapter. Hold on. Disregarded. That was the word I was looking for. It literally says that they disregarded the king's command, right? And in, and in that statement, what, what are they actually suggesting there? Yeah, yeah, that the, there was a, an, a belligerence towards the king himself, that, uh, he, that, that he was dim, dismissed, so to speak. Uh, sorry, we are not going to do that. We, and so yeah, that's right. You don't get to make the rule. Yes, I do, because I'm the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego disregarded. Yeah, and the king's command. Does it say the command in that verse? Uh, let me find. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask that next. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Right. So when you look at this, the progressive order on this is Back at the close of chapter 2, what had God done for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the king there? What did the, that's right. They had been elevated in their position. And so now they were their bosses, basically, over these men. And so these men were then, you're right, they were snitching on him. They went to the king and said, look, they disregard your, your command, O king. It really doesn't give us any of that information. It doesn't really matter. What it, what we do know is that Daniel's not in this storyline. Why do you think God might have done it that way, though, by the way? What has God already demonstrated for us in chapter 1 and in 2 about Daniel and his relationship with God? He doesn't compromise, that he's he's made his mind up that he's not going to. Yes, now maybe it's their turn to stand on their own two feet, number one. Another thing that I thought was interesting, though, is exactly, I love that, that they that it's kind of showing that quality of the dynamics of each of these individuals in the storyline. And remember, they were named among those who were called the sons of Judah. What were this, What's that title, sons of Judah, tell us? What was their heart's desire, according to God? To throw praise to God, right? The name Judah means praised, where sons of Israel in the first part of, the, of chapter 1, it, it, just, it just said of what nation they were from. But then the next time they're mentioned, it says, from among them, the sons of Israel were the sons of Judah. And Judah, by definition in the original uh, Hebrew, is the word praised. But in the Jewish mind, it means to throw praise. And therefore, what God was showing us in that change of titles for those, those four men was that these four desired to throw praise to God 
That's why he had made up his mind not to defile himself. He wanted to praise his God. So now we, what we did is we've seen Daniel do that in the first two sections where he was, you're right, the leader, and he was taking the, the lead on everything. Now it's, yes, but now these three are going to stand on their own, and they also will be sons of Judah and pr throw praise to God. Maybe, maybe, or he was off doing work for the kingdom in other areas, and maybe he was far away. Who knows? I mean, it's hard to say. We don't know. Well, that's where he was. He was assigned to work for the king's court. Yes, but as that assignment, it could have he could go TBY. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, exactly. So, I mean, all we know is he's not mentioned. And I think this is one of the subtleties I kind of got to thinking about of all this was um, God doesn't seem to ever leave anyone alone either in the fight, does he? There's Daniel kind of pledging forward, being that leader, but you have to know that you're that you're supported. It's like when Jesus sent out his followers, how did he send them out? Two by two, right? He didn't ever leave them to go alone. Now, you can be alone sometimes in faith walk, but on the whole, on a regular routine basis, what does the scripture teach us that we need? We need that fellowship of the support of our brothers and sisters, right? And so here what we see is Daniel had that apparently. He had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and in this chapter, they prove that they can stand on their own apart from Daniel, and they are just as strong and just as committed as Daniel. Although Daniel was elevated above them because of his distinctions that God gave to him, but yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were just as committed. Are you all just as committed as the pastor of your church? Even though your pastor is in a special, unique position as a spiritual leader, does that make him stronger in his face than any of you? I hope not, right? And so even though you and I are subordinate to certain people in our, in our spiritual life, we too at times must stand out as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did and stand on our own also in the same way and show those same kinds of disciplines, those same kinds of commitment of single-mindedness, right, of having made up our mind not to defile ourselves. And that's what we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They disregarded the king's command. And, and so they're proving who they are also in their walk. Now, 16 to 18. Oh, 13. I missed 13. Sorry. 13 to 15. And this is the this is good. What happened there? Well, he does. He's okay. Come here, guys. You said it behind my back. Now come and say it to my face, right? And so in the end, what did they do? No, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. And so then the king did what with him? 
he casts them into the fire, right? Now, he also makes, I think, a real profound statement. It's rather arrogant. What does he say? It's like a challenge. Yeah. What God is there that can deliver you out of my hand? <laughs> He's really, the arrogance there is strong. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? That is so true. They knew what would get under his skin and anger him, and they set him up to. Yeah. At verse 13 to uh, 15, 13 to 15, yeah, the king ordered them thrown into the fire. Well, I know, okay, he says, but if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of the blaze of fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? That is what he says in the, so that king is ordering that they are going to be cast in. That's what I just said. Right. And that's that's exactly right. And what God is there. And there's different ways you guys can title these. I'm just this is just how I I did it along it just gives the flow of thought uh, and what the, is kind of going on in here. So that you can see the the challenge and and the the spiritual warfare because then in uh, 16 to 18, there's a reply. What did Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego answer? Yeah. The ki- and, and either way, whether he does, even if he does not, what? Yeah. They answered him. Even, uh, so he answered the king, um, our, I forgot to put that part, our God is able. Our God is able. And then they they said, even if not, even if he does not, even if he does not, we will not worship. Okay? All right. So... In that, then, that was the purpose, then, for going back and looking at all of the idolatry stuff and, you know, why idolatry was so bad, what got Israel into the fix they were in to begin with, looking at Israel, uh, the divided nation, going into their slavery because of idolatry, right? And here these two boys are. Their nation is literally in the mess they're in because of their idolatry uh, that angered their God and they were cast out of their own land. And now they're being put to the test personally. Will you also follow in the way of your of your nation, your state, right, Israel. And their reply was, no, even even if our God does not save our life, we still will not worship. So there's a personal relationship. Victory for servants of the Most High God comes by this 
full-hearted commitment, just as Daniel demonstrated in one, he had made up his mind. These boys had made up their mind. They would not bow. Okay, then in 19 to 23, yeah, the king in wrath cast these three men, cast three into the fire. Yes, right. Yes, exactly. So what do we learn from that as Christians about our our own personal lives? Sometimes you have to walk in, in the fire. Now, what's the good story is what you see in 24 and 25. God's in the midst of the fire. You know, there's a, in Revelation, the letter to the churches, who is it that's seen as a candlestick in the midst of the churches? Right? It's Jesus who walks in the midst of his churches. And so what you and I can know in our new, in the New Testament covenant, just as is pictured here, God walks with those who walk with him. God walks with those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So, in fact, it says um, in Chronicles, one of the verses says, um, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the face of the earth, seeking him whose heart he might fully support. You know, he's looking for those who will turn their heart and their life toward God. And that's what his desire is, is to support them. So, okay, so the king, he casts three into the fire, and then what does he see? Yeah, this one's interesting. The king saw four in the fire. Yes. It is. If you marked all those all those words in rage and in anger and in wrath, yeah, 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 yeah. I have flames on my observation worksheet, and I've got I've got anger and wrath and bright red and yeah, you know, these angry faces, you know. Exactly. So he's it. It really shows the emotion of it all. But then, when can you just see him when you get down to 24 and 25? When he looks and it says, "What was the king?" astounded <laughs> I didn't mark that when I should I need to go back and mark it he was astounded now he's like what right what am I seeing this he saw four in the fire even though he knew he cast three in there they went into the fire how bound now what are they unbound and walking as um I again I listen online to this one uh Jewish pastor uh, who is teaching on, or is a teacher, I don't know if he's a pastor, but he's a teacher. And he was saying about the idea of walking around. This literally the, the, the word in the, in the Hebrew, or in this case Aramaic, of skipping, of just, you know. <laughs> it's probably like, <laughs> you know. He, I mean, these, the, this unbound and walking is a spirited walk. It's a happy walk. It's not like, oh, man, are we ever going to get out of here? I know. I know. Oh, I'd have been sticking my tongue out when I got out of there going, so there, I told you my God could do it. Right. Yes. Yes. 
first of all, yes, I think first of all, you would be so excited that the walking around meaning this gleeful, happy walk, this lighthearted walk would be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, look at this. We're not burning. We're not hurt. We're, I mean, they had to be really happy. But I think that actually then when they came out and now the flames have died and the reality of it, I think I would want to be in worship. I bet they went straight to prayer work, prayer uh, time with the Lord at that point, just thanking him and praising him for what he had done. And think of it also from the perspective of the witness that this gave to this king, the kingdom, and look at all the people that were there, all the satraps, all the governors, all the uh, politicians that were present to see this. They had it in for Daniel and his friends from the beginning of this book, right? And so here we see them plotting against these three, trying to have them put to death. And in the end, they, they get to see a miracle. Um, I mean, I can't imagine it. I can't. I don't know if I could even believe my own eyes if I were, had been there and saw it. I, I would probably wonder, was I dreaming almost? Yes. Yes. Right. It was not a play of on your eyes. It wasn't a figment of your imagination. These men died. They're laying dead. And the others went into the fire. But, but they belonged to whom? God, did you notice the title change again? Now we have, a, we have a new title for God here, God Most High. Did anybody look it up? Yay, Martha, my go-to girl. Listen, the rest of you have got to get into the word studies on the names of God. <laughs> and, she's my backup, and she's my backup teacher in case I, I leave here. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Il Ilay, whatever that means. The most high God, the one true God with the very highest status and power. And then in my Greek English lexicon it says the one who is supreme, primarily a reference to status, the most high God, the highest, the supreme one. And it is uh, uh, this was interesting. They gave a little more of an explanation. In some languages, because we're now in Aramaic, remember, but in some languages, the concept of height is entirely unrelated to the IT idea of importance. And that's true for us, right? And so, and therefore, it may be necessary to translate the most high as the most important or the greatest. So the most high God is the most important or the greatest. I think the greatest is a better term because it also then encompasses his attributes of omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence and all those other things that are not contained, right? Okay, we got five minutes to get through this. And we are almost at the end, so oh, we did really good. Okay, so now we're going to close it then. We see um, in 26 and 27, what does the king do? The king calls them out, and he called the servant. He called them at that point the servants of the Most High God. So there's that new title for God, the Most High God. And then he says they came out. I'm over here. They came out. 
How? Unharmed. Okay, so that is 26 and 27. And now we're at the close, 28 to 30. What was the king's response now? Before we had the anger and the rage and the, and the astonishment, right? And now what do we see this king do here? Yeah. He, he literally, the king blessed. The king blessed. Now let me add it. Um, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants. Did anybody have a question about that angel, the fourth man in the fire? We didn't really talk about it much, did we? Any thoughts? Did you look at commentaries on that and read up on any possibilities for understanding of what you think that might be? Yes, in this, she said, you can read your commentaries after you were done with homework this week on chapter 3, but don't do chapter 2. Okay. Okay, so it was either a pre-incarnate uh, uh, appearance of Christ himself as the first, and I don't know where any of you land on that, I tend to go in that direction because of the statement of the king where he says he looks like he is what? A son of the gods in his understanding. And for us it would be uh, he looks like the son of God, <laughs> right? And so that that is just my thought on that. And we do know that in scriptures over and over this picture of Jesus' appearance um, for salvation. I mean, it's just a beautiful picture. Who is it that is going to save us? When you guys looked at uh, Revelation 13 and Revelation 20 this week, right, what do we know is coming for you and I? We talk about there's no idols set up in our land today, right? But is there going to be a day when that's going to be so again, that this world is literally going to face this exact scenario again? Right? In Revelation um, 13, it says there's going to be a beast. Who is the beast? Does it mean Antichrist, right? And it says he will come up out of the sea. The dragon gives him his power and his throne and great authority. He speaks blasphemies against God. He is able to wage war. Who is able to wage war with him? Again, who is able to, to snatch you out of my hand, said Nebuchadnezzar here this one he says who is able to wage war with him he's so powerful you can't do it all who dwell on the earth will what worship him then there's another beast that follows that in chapter 13 and that's going to be the false prophet he will exercise all authority of the first beast he makes the earth worship the beast. He commands an image to be made to the beast. He will have power to kill those who do not worship the beast and or the image of the beast. And he causes all to be given a mark, provides that no one will be able to buy or sell without it. So that's what's coming down the road at the end of the age. And we're going to study all that later. But if we think that this scenario is is something in the past and never to be seen again we are sadly mistaken listen if you can't get hold of the de the demons that are in your life the idols that are in your life that have to do with the lust of the flesh and the pride of life 
If you can't handle those, what are you going to do when a real idol is put before you and you're asked to make a choice? Now, personally, I think we're out of here. I think the church is raptured. We will never see that. But what if, what if, right? The scenario is there. We know it's coming. And you need to predetermine, as Daniel did, and make up your mind that you will not defile yourself. In Revelation 20, verse 4, you closed out with that verse, and it says, those who do not worship that beast, what? What's going to happen to them? Do you remember? Yeah. They will come to life and will reign with Christ for a thousand years. So there's a hope and a promise. Remember what Daniel, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said? Even if he does not rescue us, we will not worship. Why? For this very reason. They said, basically in their mind, they knew that they had a day of reckoning and a day of accountability to their God Most High. And whether he, they rescued them in this temporal life or not, they knew there's a life to come that they were living for. Right? And that's what we are all to live for. So that was our chapter three. It's great lessons in here. So many things.